So, we are continuing our, our walk through church history, and we're in the modern age, and we're talking about the post-war years where we are, we're looking at a new conservative, a conservatism, a, a kind of a, a fresh take on taking this all very seriously that happened after the war. However, just like we see so much of the time through history, there's always this pendulum back and forth. Anytime that you see a lot of error, you'll see people willing to die to stand up for truth. Anytime you see a growth of conservatism, there's a there's a there's a backlash that comes from that. So conservatism, conservatism. Ten Commandments comes out in 1956, right? Can you be more biblically conservative than the Ten Commandments, right? Very conservative. Made by a successful filmmaker, Cecil B. DeMille, who's done a whole bunch of different things. You say, when you hear in movies, they have old movies, they talk about a director, and they're like, sure thing, CB. That's him they're pretending to talk about. You know, the CB, the Cecil B. DeMille. It was actually a remake of the 1923 silent movie. The Ten Commandments that he had made. So if you if you, if you ever say, boy, I wish I could see it, you know, I wish I could see more of it, because three hours and forty minutes is just not enough. Go check that out at a library somewhere. Paramount almost didn't make it. They almost refused to make the movie because the vast majority of Paramount's board of directors were Jewish. And you might just think, of, well, but wouldn't they want a good movie about Moses? Yes, they wanted a good movie about Moses. And the idea of a Gentile making a movie about Moses, they said, no, I don't think we're going to let you do that. Until Jewish studio chair Adolf Zucker, who was a Freemason with Cecil B. DeMille, said, no, no, we're going to throw this to my Masonic brother. And I trust him. He's always been very respectful in how he does things. I mean, the 1923 one rocked. Let's just give him a chance. Let's let him do it. So it was one of the most expensive movies ever made, but it was also record-breaking in terms of how much money it made. To fill in about the 30 missing years, as they refer to it, because there's, you know, you hear about Moses being born, and then you hear about him <laughs> as an adult running around and doing things. To fill that in, they went to ancient historians like Philo and Josephus to try to fill in some of the gaps as to what happened, which means that they took what we call creative liberties with the text. It's all those things you say, well, no big deal. I mean, if the Bible doesn't speak to it and you want to add to things, it's fine. And it's little things, like the Pharaoh of the Bible is never named. He's just Pharaoh. Is it Ramses? Could be. Decent chance, maybe. Maybe not. Pharaoh's wife, never named. And we're never told she had any kind of romantic relationship with Moses. That's just an interesting little subplot, you know, difficulty between Moses and Ramses, you know, sibling rivalry. Then again, there's no sibling nothing in the Bible. There's no indication that they ever had any sense of a fraternal relationship or that they were even the same age at all. In fact, depending on which Pharaoh it was and when Moses came in, he may never have met the guy until he went back from Midian to Egypt. So that may never have happened. Nor is there any mention of Moses being some kind of successful leader or a military ruler or anything like that. Nothing like that in scripture. Everybody's like, oh, he was, he was like the heir presumptive. He was, he was the best guy they had. Based on what? There's nothing in scripture about that. Nor is there any suggestion he didn't know he was a Jew his whole life. <coughs> the 
idea that you know, when he became you know, an adult, he finally realized he's a Jew, and he said, ah, oh, this changes everything. Really? Read your Bible. Is there anything that suggests he didn't know he was a Jew? Maybe he didn't. There's no reason to believe that. For that matter, the, Moses is said to have been not eloquent. He went, they spoke multiple times about how the fact is he was never a good speaker. Does that sound like... When you think of Charlton Heston, you think, man... I just wish he had a decent voice. I wish he could speak better. No, people will refer to things as, well, that's your Charlton Heston voice, isn't it? In the movie, Moses is dramatically banished from Egypt. May the name of Moses be stricken. He just ran away in the Bible, right? Killed a guy, buried him in the sand. Somebody said, hey, killed a guy, buried him in the sand. So he's like, I'm out of here. But when you're, when you're built like Charlton Heston, you know, you want scenes like that in your movie. In the movie, Moses is only a Midian for a short time before he goes back to Egypt. He's only there apparently long enough to grow his beard out a little bit. In fact, his hair goes white and poofy because he saw God, right? If you remember in the movie, he looked normal. He went and saw God, came back, poofy white hair. Not because he's 80. Like, you know, in the book. In the book, He's like 40 when he goes to Egypt. He's like 80 when he goes back. God calls him back from Midian. No, 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 no. We don't have that kind of time. We've only got three hours and 40 minutes. So, push. Plus, it's a still young Joshua that calls him back to Egypt, isn't it? Not God so much. It's Joshua comes and says, I somehow figured out you were in Midian. And so, come on back and help us. And Moses goes, all right. Because... He doesn't walk right anymore and doesn't really make eye contact the way he used to because on account he's got the poofy white hair because he just saw God. That's what happens when you're holy. You don't walk right and you don't make eye contact anymore. In the movie, parting the Red Sea, spectacular and instantaneous. In the Bible, it took all night for that to happen, right? And it took forever for them to walk across. I go through all this not to slam the idea of creative liberties. I get it. Anytime you're adapting something to the screen. I'm kind of a purist when it comes to this sort of thing. I want to be as close to the source material as you can. But I understand it. I get it. That's not the problem. And I love this movie. I mean, this is Cecil B. DeMille directing Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner and Edward G. Robinson and Vincent Price and Elmer Bernstein score. Yeah, I love this movie. But what I find interesting is this movie is roundly considered to be a conservative biblical take by an amazing number of people. They will talk about your classic biblical values like the Ten Commandments. It really plays fast and loose with scripture. It's not bad, I'm just saying. When people talk about, why can't we make good movies? Why can't Hollywood make good biblical movies like they used to? You know, that honor the Bible. What exactly do you mean by that? Because I think we need to just, I'm not slamming it, I'm just saying think about what you mean by that. Because evangelicals slammed Exodus, Gods and Kings, right? Because it played fast and loose with the Bible. But in the process of attacking this movie, an amazing number of reviewers, especially Christian reviewers, cited the Charlton Heston 1956 movie, saying it should have been more like that. I still think there's some differences there on how they're... Why? Well, 
Okay, I, I understand what you're saying when they added stuff. Um, it's clearly needed more length than the Ten Commandments. But um, it's it didn't change Moses' character. Ah! Because technically, <laughs> if it's reverent to the biblical text, if it's if it feels like that, if it's if it's got the right tone, if it's got the right heart, because you sit there and go, Moses' character, he's he's this um, he's this guy that once he becomes holy, his wife even says, I've lost him. I got no relationship with him anymore. I mean, because that's biblical, right? Once once you become the holy man, you're you're done with having a family relationship. That's Moses' character, right? And he's this great speaker, amazing speaker. That's Moses' biblical character, right? And a man of great faith, when he goes back to Egypt, says, I will do all that, I will, and Aaron quietly stands next to him. That's the biblical Moses, right? I don't disagree with what you're saying. What I'm pointing to is, no, this is also not the biblical character, and yet, it's got more of a reverential tone to it. It's trying to show the Bible in a very positive light. It's trying to have a reverent tone where Exodus, Gods, and Kings was trying to deconstruct the character, was trying to make him, well, he's just clearly nuts, you know, that sort of thing. So, point I'm getting at here is, we look at this and we say it's conservative. Technically, when we use the terms liberal and conservative, when we're talking about conservative, biblically conservative, what we mean is, is we want to base it solidly on the text. We want to go back and say, what does the Bible say? I want, I want to exegete from it, not eisegete into it. So when we talk about this being more reverential to the text, I just want to make sure that we understand why. It's not more reverential in, in terms of its hermeneutic, because it's fine with playing footsie with the text. It's reverential with its tone. It feels more reverential, and therefore we want to give it more sense of being reverent to the text. So long as something looks and feels churchy, now this is at its worst light, so long as something looks and feels churchy, we tend to accept it especially in 1956, as reverent. And it isn't irreverent. It's just, I don't know that I would call it conservative. Okay, I'm sorry. This just reminds me a little bit of when, I don't know, when you were going through the story of Moses, I was like, oh, God, I thought I need to go back and read some of this again, because I'm so used to seeing the movie, of when the kids in youth group will talk about veggie tales, that a lot of them really don't know the biblical stories that well. They know that take on the biblical story. And I think that, I think VeggieTales is a good example, maybe not quite the same level as Cecily Camille's Ten Commandments, but it's a good example of the same sort of thing where you go, the tone is right, the heart is right, what you're trying to do is good. God help us if that's what we think is the biblical story. I mean, if you say, Jonah, you know, with, in scripture, the fish slapping, you say, no, there's no fish slapping in Jonah. But the same phenomenon came up with Prince of Egypt. You ever see Prince of Egypt? I love this movie. It's got a great heart, beautiful music. It's got some awesome, God-honoring moments. And many of the exact same, not even remotely biblical elements. That brotherhood between Ramses and Moses, the fact that you call him Ramses, the fact that Moses was in Midian maybe a minute and a half, the, the fact that the Red Sea parted really pretty quickly, all that stuff, that we go, yeah, that, that, that's fine, though. It's not horrible. I'm not slamming it. I'm just, we need to realize... The details are important. And don't think that that's the biblical model, because this became the highest grossing film of 1956 and the second most successful film made in the 1950s. Anybody know what the first most successful film made in the 1950s was? That would be Ben-Hur, also starring Charlton Heston. 
or as I like to call him, my man, Charlton Heston. I love Charlton Heston. And ABC has aired it almost every Easter for the last 45 years. I mean, that in its entirety. They take them, you know, four-hour block on that Sunday night. And that's, that's a whole set of generations of devoted evangelicals watching this going, dude, I totally, as a good conservative Christian, I know this story inside and out because I've seen the Ten Commandments like 23 times. Again, not bad, not horrible. I don't want to say that. Just, it isn't the Bible. <coughs> and we just need to be careful about that sort of thing. But Cecil B. DeMille clarified, if you ever watched the intro to it, Cecil B. DeMille filmed an intro to it where he said, really, the film is intended to be a socio-political argument about the Cold War. Right? You, you understand that? Because he said that. He says, the theme of this picture is whether man ought to be ruled by God's law or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramses. Are men the property of the state, or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues through the world today. Are we in a world of dictators where we should be dictated to by men? Where humans are just the property of the state, they're nothing but cogs in some sort of machine? Or should they be free men under God to make their own choices, their own decisions? Everybody goes, yeah, it's about Moses! And you go, it includes Moses. You're absolutely right. And it's got some wonderful moments. Just understand, no movie was ever made because somebody thought, that story's cute. There's, there's, there's always an edge to it. Not necessarily a bad one. Same year, the Anchor Bible series came out. Anybody ever hear of the Anchor Bible? Anchor Bible series, kind of a famous thing. In reaction to this growing evangelical movement, I mean, again, Ten Commandments comes off going, we're extremely conservative, and most highest growing movie, <laughs> highest grossing movie ever. Uh, after you see the, the, the growth of, of, uh, of publications like The Fundamentals from 1910 or the Schofield Reference Bible, liberal scholars are like, we kind of need our own thing. I mean, the, the market is now flooded with all these extremely conservative things. And so under the oversight of a guy named William Albright, who was famous for helping to authenticate the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 48, Albright prepared the Anchor Bible series. It was this multi-volume set that had new translation, text notes, articles on all the canonical books, the blue ones of the Old Testament, the red ones of the New Testament, and these kind of eggshell ones over here are the intertestamental books, or the apocryphal books. There hadn't really been a commentary set like this before. So when you look at the commentaries on the library shelves, that concept basically came out of the Anchor Bible series. And it's from a specifically theologically liberal perspective. So, for instance, in his 1968 volume, Yahweh and the Gods of Canaan, Albright said, well, monotheism kind of evolved. I mean, originally the, the Jews were polytheists, like the rest of Canaan was, and little by little they kind of adapted all those old Canaanite myths and attributed them to one god that they called Yahweh. Now, he said, I, I can't find satisfactory, satisfactory parallels to this. There's, there's nothing that I see specifically pointing to that, mind you. But I just know it because I understand the German documentary hypothesis. Remember when we talked about this? The, the idea of the assumption that Everything that's in scripture is the result of various editors over time putting things together and, dis and uh, disagreeing with one another, all coming from earlier written sources or earlier oral sources that themselves had more mythological bases. So 
you say, who wrote, who wrote the book of Genesis? The Germans wrote, well, at least four different guys, because they all disagree. Anytime you see somebody using the name Yahweh, that's one guy. Anytime you see somebody using the name God, that's a different guy. Anytime somebody lists a law, that's a different guy. Anytime somebody talks about what you should do in a worship situation, that's a different guy. So assuming all that, then we can clearly see that the Bible evolved. It's not like it was inspired by God. So over the past 60 years, the Anchor Bible series produced more than 30 individual volumes with more than 3 million copies in print. But it became this comprehensive, popular, and scholarly resource. And it cemented liberal scholarship as good scholarship. And it's excellent. I mean, these guys are brilliant. But more than anything else, the Anchor Bible series is what made everybody say, if you're a good scholar, if you really are good at what you do, you won't believe this stuff. Not, not really. In fact, the, in 2008, the series was acquired by Yale, who said, yeah, we're going to use this, and we love its objective treatment of competing theories. Because Yale is really all about being objective when thinking about religious things, right? They don't, they don't, they don't have an axe to grind, right? On the same page, on the web page, they had the press release about that. There was a link to an article entitled, How Well Did Jesus Know His Bible? And so I thought, I'm kind of curious. How well did Jesus know his Bible? So I read it, and the article states, The gospel is written at least several decades after Jesus' death by people who didn't know him are notoriously poor historical sources that frequently depict Jesus citing scripture to his followers, which is clearly ridiculous. Because we've already decided Jesus wouldn't have known scripture. Therefore, he didn't know scripture. Instead, let's imagine instead a scripturally challenged Jesus. He might have picked up bits and pieces of scripture, which he may have occasionally preached on, something along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount, which even if that sermon ever happened, even if it's true, shows only a low-level familiarity with the Ten Commandments. For such a Jesus, you know, like the one depicted in the Gospel of John or the non-canonical Gospel of Thomas, which we can trust a lot more than the other ones. Scripture was only not only almost unknown, but also largely irrelevant. Instead of scripture, what Jesus knew and thought about were traditional Jewish customs and stories. I mean, clearly Jesus assumed that it was tradition, actual communal practice, rather than a text that bore religious authority. In creating a scripture-citing Jesus, though, the Gospels' authors shifted that focus. Because they're objective. This is good scholarship. Do you understand why the other week I said, even after all the boycotts and all that kind of stuff, basic, fundamental Western theology is more based on the last temptation than it is on Scripture? This basic idea that, well, I mean, clearly the Jesus you see in Scripture is an invented creature. It's not, it's not the way he really was. I mean, we have to rip Jesus down, because otherwise we don't, we don't measure up. Right? How important is the text? How important would you say Jesus would say the text is? Is it tradition that Jesus says is the good idea? Or is it the word of God that Jesus says you need to pin yourself to? Does that ever come up? It's the exact opposite. You would think! He says you Pharisees do that. I know, but clearly, clearly history is written, written by the victors, right? So if the gospel writers wrote that, then that's clearly not true. We have to improve the Bible. 
56, same year that It Is Written first aired. Have you ever heard of It Is Written as a program? Seventh-day Adventist minister George Vandeman started this, and it wasn't his first attempt. Back in the late 40s, he had tried to do a, a TV ministry, and the denomination said, why? <laughs> Nobody watches TV. That's ridiculous. It's a waste of time. No, we're not going to support it. But here, in the 50s, he's like, okay, everybody's watching I Love Lucy now. Everybody's watching this kind of stuff. So it's going to be a great lead-in to this evangelistic crusade I'm doing in Fresno. So give me 13 weeks. I'm going to do a 13-week Bible study on TV. We'll, 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 we'll kick it in, and then after that, I'll do this big outreach. But really quickly, he realized, everybody's watching this. I'm getting so many more people watching my program than I was ever going to get with the outreach event I was planning to do in Fresno. So he's like, I'm actually going to invest more and more into this. 13 weeks turned into 61 years. So this, this show has been on TV for the last 61 years, which I think is impressive. And he still did the evangelism event, but he, he's like, no, 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 this is reaching people. It's still being broadcast in Discovery Channel, TBN, and all those different, especially big in um, Oceania, uh, 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 Oceania. Oceania? Anyway. Uh, South Pacific, uh, you know, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Polynesia. It's number one in its market there. It's huge there. Um, it's also the first religious program to be filmed in color. So it's kind of historically accurate, or historically important with that, if that matters to you. But the denomination continued, even, even though they're like, oh, this is popular, they continued doing the original purpose. They're like, we're going to use this as an inroad to actual physical evangelism in various areas. And so they've done outreach on six continents, and they've reached tons of different people. Today's programming can be viewed by 97% of the human population. It's in markets that touch 97%. Now, they're not all watching it. You're not watching it. I'm not watching it. But we could. 97%. That's what you call saturation. That's kind of impressive, starting in 56. 56 is also the year that the People's Temple was founded from the Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ. Church of Christ, yay. Church of Christ, yeah, sure. Growing up in Indiana, Jim Jones, the son of an alcoholic, racist, abusive father, he grew older and he was really alienated from people and he found himself drawn to Marxism. He's like, they're alienated the same way I feel alienated. And it's amazing, when somebody feels alienated, they will tend to be drawn to other people who are alienated. And he was increasingly getting frustrated with America and the fact that we didn't like it. He openly supported North Korea's invasion of South Korea, began attending meetings of the Communist Party in 51. He later stated in a recording, I decided, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. So I consciously made a decision to look into that prospect. I mean, I've only been a dual concept. I'm, I'm a doubter and I'm a believer. Certainly I had great questions about that anthropomorphic beings and a loving order to the universe. But Jesus, that guy, to use a kid's phrase, he greatly turned me on. I like that. I mean, God, no. But Rabbi Jesus, cool. 52, he became a student pastor in the Somerset Southside Methodist Church. But within two years, he left to form his own church, either because, as he stated, church leadership resisted his efforts to racially integrate the congregation, which, which was true. He was trying to bring in different races, and they said, well, we don't want those people here. But arguably, it was also because he kind of wanted to have his own church, where he could do pretty much his own thing. He had attended a Pentecostal healing service, 
and recognize that there's a lot of power there and a lot of money there. And so he decided that his own community unity church would hold their own healing services. And they faked healings all over the place. Former members flat out say, oh yeah, we were taught exactly how to fake healings. There, there were some healings that we can't explain, but most of them are things that we, we knew flat out we were lying about. By 1956, they were large enough to buy their own building. In a, consciously, they picked a racially mixed neighborhood. And they renamed the congregation the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. By the way, it's People's Temple, not People, apostrophe S. And it's not People's S apostrophe. It's just People's. It's People's Church. Because Jim Jones taught that apostrophes are bad. Apostrophes show ownership. And we don't own it. God wants everything in our lives to belong to everyone in our lives, right? It's wrong to have any sense of ownership of things because he's a Christian Marxist, right? Okay. He also began involving the church in multiple community action programs. They took over nursing homes and, and took care of people and brought food to the poor and started uh, uh, soup kitchens and things. They, he made it a point to go around changing the bedpans in the African-American ward of the hospitals. He became known in the Indianapolis community and not only as a social crusader, but this amazing preacher. And everybody would come and listen to him because he was so powerful. But the entire time, even he was very open about the fact that he was consciously following the example of Father Divine. Do you remember him from back in the teens? The guy who used social crusades and integration of races to build his own cult where he was worshipped as God. Yeah. And so everybody's like, wow, Father Divine, he was so good. Look at what he did for racial reconciliation. Tremendous things, absolutely. So that he was filthy rich and extremely powerful. 1959, the church gained respectability by joining the Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, who were famous for being very flexible in doctrine. But the, the Disciples of Christ said, they, they summarized themselves by saying this, quote, I'll tell you what I think, but read the Bible for yourself, then study and pray about it. Decide in what ways God's calling you to be a follower of Jesus. You just encourage <coughs> yourself. Which any good evangelical will say that. Yes, I'll tell you what I think, but I want you to read the Bible. There's a slightly different tone, which is why I read it that way. The idea in the disciples of Christ was, it's not like I could tell you. Any good evangelical will say, I'd rather scripture tell you. 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell named Jones the director of the city's new Human Rights Commission. 1961, he and his wife became the first white couple in Indiana to, to adopt a black child. They were incredibly, profoundly helpful in, in breaking down racial barriers. Early 1960s, Jones became utterly convinced nuclear war is inevitable. Clearly it's going to happen. He read an article in Esquire that said that South America was the safest place to survive the war. Um, and so he he made a, a plans to take a trip there to check out Brazil, to check out Guyana, see what was available. And in the meantime, he informed his congregation that the world would be destroyed on July 15, 1967. So they need to at least move to Northern California or something, someplace remote, uh, to try to ride it out, which, which they did. And the world wasn't destroyed in 1967. Strangely enough, it wasn't. But by then, it didn't matter. Because his followers weren't just thinking this is a great church or he's a good guy. His followers were thinking he was God. And they would do anything he told them to do. That's because he preached that he was. Forgive me, but I'm going to preach from, a, from one of the sermons. He said, what you need to believe in is what you can see. 
If you can see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those that don't have a father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. I came to show you that the only God you need is within you. There shall be no need for gods, any other kind of ideology. Religion, that opiate of the people. Where do you get the phrase opiate of the people? Drug. Oh, yeah, drug, the opium that, that's making you nod off, that's making you drowsy. But the phrase opiate of the people. Lenin got it from Marx. So, yes, Marxism and Leninism. Religion, that opiate of the people, shall be removed from the consciousness of mankind. There shall no longer be any need for anything religious when freedom comes. And that same sermon, he said, until I eradicate it from the face of the earth, I will do all the miracles you said your God would do, but never did. I see some are not aware of what God is. The only thing that brings perfect freedom, justice, and equality, perfect love, and all its beauty and holiness is socialism. Socialism. I have taken myself a body. I come as God's socialist. And I must say, it's a great effort to be God. If you're holding on to that sky God of the Bible, I'll mow them out. Ten lengths every time. Will you tell me you believe in God out there? So what? What's your sky God ever done? Two out of three nations in the world are hungry. Misery in every one of your homes. The only happiness you've ever found is when you come to this earth God, me. You prayed to your sky God. He never heard your prayers. You asked and begged and pleaded in your suffering. He never gave you any food. He never gave you a bed. He never provided a home. But I, your socialist worker God, have given you all these things, after which he physically stopped on a Bible and said if there really was a God, he would have done something. Not yet. How far gone would you have had to have been as a Christian to buy into that? And yet, let me ask you, if you didn't listen to one of his sermons, if you just looked at his growing church that was making inroads in the community and helping so many people and doing amazing work in racial reconciliation, might you have thought he's a good pastor? 1975, San Francisco awarded him with the Martin Luther King Jr. Award for tireless service to the community. Because he did such awesome work. Is doctrinal error okay if at least some really good ministry gets done? How important is capital T truth? Unchanging objective truth. If you are actually out there helping people, if you're actually bringing about the stuff that Christ talks about in the Bible, isn't a little doctrinal error okay? <coughs> well, I know I okay, you laugh, but everybody's like, I know what you don't, but outside the church, like if truth doesn't matter to begin with, then by all means, what he's doing to uh, for racial relations within the community, why that would be celebrated, that makes a lot of sense. There, I would think, looking at stuff, hopefully, the same way the church is looking at stuff. But it's it's awfully hard for us sometimes to say, <coughs> how, how important is this? Entirely accurate. Ten and I'm not saying Ten Commandments is like Jim Jones. And it's okay to tweak it a little bit, isn't it? A little, little bit more. Where exactly is the bright line where you've ignored the Bible to the point where maybe now you've made a mistake? Your view of God and looking at someone that claims to be God's blessing. Well, 
I think that's clearly <laughs> off, the, off the map. But I'm not even sure I would call that the bright line. It's like everything's fine up until your pastor starts declaring himself God. You're going to say. Oh, I, just, I think they're both important. I think the truth is important, and I think, you know, I, but I don't think, I also don't think that because he was bonkers that his service to the community was was worthless. I mean, I think they're, I think they're both important. Yeah. I don't think his service to the community is worthless. I wish we had more people like Tim Jones. Right? How comfortable are you with that statement? Okay. 73, Jones is arrested for soliciting an undercover policeman for homosexual sex in a gay theater's bathroom, which didn't hurt his, pop his popularity or reputation, amazingly, in San Francisco. Instead, as a cover for it, suddenly, after his arrest, he started telling church people, you know, we need to be reaching out to prostitutes in the gay community and things. We need to be showing love. We need to be showing that, you know, nobody's perfect. We need to embrace these people. And everybody says, wow. What an awesome church. And in that good, shouldn't we be embracing homosexuals and saying God loves you too? Shouldn't we? Praise God for Jim Jones. I wish we had more Jim Joneses. Jones also began pressuring both males and females in his church to have sex with him because um, it's a blessing and it's communion. It draws you close to God on account of I'm God, right? Besides, shouldn't everything belong to everybody? Isn't that what God wants? All things in common? Don't you read Acts? What'd you say? <laughs> well, the United Community, if you had somebody really creepy leading it, yeah. <laughs> he then would oftentimes publicly shame them for doing it. After that, he would bring them up on a Sunday morning and say, you know, Floyd wanted me to have sex with him. He begged me to have sex with him. Because Floyd's a homosexual, but Floyd, you can still be forgiven. You can still be forgiven. By the way, Joey, I had sex with your wife, but you wanted me to. And I brought her close to God, but you're a weak husband. But I'm a strong man. That seem weird, but when you're in a brainwashing kind of situation, the idea of constantly slamming somebody down, then picking them up, and slamming them down, and picking them up, after a while you're like, you're a moral person, and only I can pick you up. Church even actively campaigned for Harvey Milk, first openly gay man to be elected in public office in California. Because they're progressive? No. 1976, he's regularly meeting with Governor Jerry Brown, VP candidate Walter Mondale. He spoke alongside Rosalind Carter who wrote a very glowing letter in response to him saying, boy, I wish we had more people like you in the community. Yeah, that's great. Spoke at the grand opening of the San Francisco Democratic Party headquarters. Same year, he was named chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission, where he did tremendous work in helping the city's poor against slumlords and developers. It was significant. He genuinely did. I don't want to rip down any of the stuff that he did. So we want more Jim Joneses, yes? How important is capital T truth? As we talked before, if you truly believe the truth of Scripture, by definition you have to live it out, right? Isn't that what Carl F.H. Henry was talking about? That's the that's the whole point of evangelicalism. I mean, it's evangelicalism. It's sharing the good newsism. If you actually believe this, you actually have to live this out. Truth, real truth, means you actually have to do it. If you don't do it, you didn't really understand the truth. And so we have people that go right. So I need to understand the truth and sit in a, in a room and constantly make sure that I'm correct. You know, well, then you're not an evangelical. Okay. Then it doesn't matter if it's correct as long as I go and do good things. Then you're not an evangelical. Truth lived out. 
but he eventually starts catching up with him. He forced a longtime church member named Tim Stone to sign an affidavit declaring that Jones had, that Stone had personally asked Jones to have sex with his wife, Grace, because Grace was planning to leave the church, and so Stone wanted to do stuff to make her ingratiated to the church, but part of the affidavit asserted that Jones was thus the biological father of their son, John. Because that works, right? Grace still left the church, and all of a sudden all these reporters found out about this and started investigating the church, going, what exactly is going on here? Wait, there's a legal affidavit on file? that This guy asked his pastor to have sex with his wife? What's going on in this church? By 1977, San Francisco, everybody was talking about this. And high-level officials, I mean, the governor's office, the mayor's office, are all saying, this is totally unfounded. Jim Jones is a wonderful person. Everybody just needs to shut up. Just appreciate what he's done. His work has been significant. Let's focus on that, not on petty little things about, after a while, details emerge. Uh, you realize they've been, like, beating people up, possibly murdering people in the community. Um, he constantly and repeatedly abuses his own church members verbally and physically. He's, they've been smuggling guns and ammunition to a compound in Guyana. Jones is a constant drug user. He calls himself God. And so even Jerry Brown starts going, I can't, ah, no comment anymore. But the night the first news story came out, the first major news story broke, Jones moved with about a thousand of his followers to Guyana. He's like, I'm done. I'm not even going to be here when the newspaper comes out in the morning. Including cuckolded Tim Stone, who quit his job as assistant district attorney to follow his God Whoa. and take John with him. Because he and his wife had joint custody. <laughs> Jones forced Stone to give John to him because you know, he's the biological father, so legally he's his and then publicly berated him for it. Trot out John and say, this is my son. You know why it's my son? Because Tim couldn't satisfy his wife. Tim begged me to have to have sex with Grace. And she still left the church. What does that say about Tim? Right, Tim? Right? Right? Yeah. But God still loves him. I still love him. I still love him. Sit down, you weak little man. You're probably gay. But God still loves him. Picture that. All day. Every day. You either leave, or you no longer critically think. His control became more controlling. It, it began using more and more drugs. Paranoia grew. He consistently started preaching that nuclear war is imminent, that the United States is going to send people to torture and kill every single person in the temple. They started holding regular drills called White Nights, where they would get together and drink poison so that their enemies couldn't get to them. No, it wasn't poison. They didn't know. He'd say this is poison. They'd drink it, and then he'd say, okay, that wasn't actually poison. But one of these times it needs to be. You just have to have faith in me and that I'll take you to the next place. Tim himself starts saying, you know what? I'm, I'm not taking this anymore. I don't, I don't agree. And I'm sick of being picked on. So he went back to America to actually work with Grace to get custody of John back from Jones. But Guyana wouldn't support the custody question. Guyana said, we, we don't care about American custody battles. You said he's with his father, right? He's with his biological father. We're not getting involved with this. So he finally turned to Washington and to Congressman Leo Ryan, whose own close friend had been brutally murdered by the temple two years before when he tried to leave the group. So Ryan said, yes, I will help you. 
Ryan led a team in 78, a delegation of 18 people down to Guyana to investigate what on earth is going on down there. Started interviewing people. Two families begged Ryan to let them leave with him, saying, we're, we're really afraid for our lives. Little John, who's getting a little older now, begged the families to stay with his father. You know, God. At the airport, several temple members murdered Ryan and most of the delegation to prevent them from flying back and filing a report, which amazingly didn't work because they didn't kill everybody on the airstrip. So Jones called his people together for one last white night, though this time for real. He's like, there's going to there's gonna be a backlash. His aides prepared a large metal tub filled with grape flavor aid. Not Kool-Aid. I know, everybody says, drink the Kool-Aid, but it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was Flavor-Aid. It's just that they're a lot alike, and nobody in America really knew much about Flavor-Aid. They knew Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid. Everybody had seen the Kool-Aid commercials, and so the easiest way of explaining it is Kool-Aid. call things by their brand name. Like, you say, give me a Band-Aid. Don't say, give me a Rite-Aid brand Band-Aid. That's right. You know? I, I need a Kleenex, <laughs> and I'm going to put on a Band-Aid before I go make my Xerox while I'm eating some Fritos. <laughs> I get it. Poor Kool-Aid, though, it's like, it wasn't us! <laughs> that is unfortunate. It is unfortunate, isn't it? His aides prepared this large metal tub, poisoned with cyanide and chlorhydrate, valium, lots of other different tranquilizers, and 909 members of the People Temple, 304 of which were children, given poison by their own parents, died. Sure, it was a lot of paper. Oh, I, I remember. Yeah, I, I, I remember that vividly. And Jones, the entire time, is reminding people to remember that in the end, we didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world before finally shooting himself. So, help me out. What can we learn from that? We can learn, oh, it's bad. Absolutely. What can we learn from that? Well, one thing is to if you're following someone is to see check out the background and uh -huh. see what his character is like and are there some hidden things that when you see something that doesn't quite make sense check that out don't blindly follow and once you get in once you start to get in you know to to again have some accountability and see if your leader has accountability think critically right I mean, didn't Paul even say, please be like the Brians and double-check everything I say against Scripture? Because if it's not biblically correct, just stop it. Is anything he's saying by the end politically, biblically correct? Politically correct, some of them I don't. Biblically correct? No. So yes, critically think. What else? He started in Indiana, right? Yeah. His name's Jones. Understand it better, and when are we deviating right. from scripture? And and 
And one, are we just being petty? I mean, we're, are we arguing about the color of the carpet? Are we, how many angels can dance on the head of the pen, yada, yada? Are we saying, I'm an Arminian, you're a Calvinist, and we need to have genuine discussion because this stuff actually matters? Or are we saying, you know, it, it doesn't really matter as long as you're doing Jesus-y stuff. As long as it looks churchy, it's okay. Tell you what, let's move on. It's 57. United Church of Christ was founded. Anybody ever hear of the United Church of Christ? we got one just like baseballs throw from here. Got to back up when I say that. Well, all right, maybe a good baseball hit from here. First time we're right over there. Anyway, United Church of Christ is actually a result of a merger between the Congregational Christian Churches and the Evangelical and Reformed Church. And the Congregational Christian Churches are actually the result of an earlier merger between the New England Congregational Churches, remember the came back from the Puritans even, and the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ. For that matter, the Evangelical and Reformed Church itself had been the result of an earlier merger between the German Evangelical Synod and the dissatisfied members of the Reformed Churches of America. So, here's my question. What kind of theology satisfies all these groups? Okay, yeah, it's a trick question. None! No theology! Which itself has a double meaning here. Because the United Church of Christ decided the way to keep everybody happy was to actively decide not to have a strong theological bent. Or, to be more precise, to have a strong theological bent toward having no theology. Because that way, everybody's happy. And that's what you're looking for in a church, right? Do good things in the community, make sure everybody's happy, who cares what they think. Yeah? Well, I was just going to say, I'm feeling the last story might speak into this, too. Okay, and ironically, it's not like I put them together that way. Right. This is the next thing that's... Right. Right. I think it kind of does. I think you're with me on this. On their website, they say, ours is a church of tolerance and understanding. Thus, you won't be told what to believe or how to act. There are many paths to Jesus Christ. We're all on a journey to discover where God's leading us. Again, and a good evangelical says, you do have to understand scripture. You do have to own it yourself. <laughs> but... The idea of going, oh, I never tell somebody what to believe or what to do. I'm like, well, then you're probably not very sharpening in your iron, are you? 2003, the UCC began an outreach campaign using a quote from the Catholic Gracie Allen, where she said, never place a period where God has placed a comma. And what she meant by that in context was, you know, God's not done with your story yet. Everybody wants to say this conclusion isn't good. And she's like, who said it's over? Who said, your, who said that story's over yet? You've got a chance. He knows what he's doing. Their application of a quote is that God is still speaking to people today and changing his truth to meet the needs of an ever-changing world. So don't put a period at the end of the Bible like that's the end of it. The end of the Bible is just a comma. You shouldn't think that your spiritual foundation should begin or end with Scripture. If we were wedded to the Bible, we'd have multiple lives. Or my favorite, the Bible is like GPS, a brilliant guide, all-knowing, occasionally wrong. I mean, you can't trust it because it sometimes says things you don't believe. And if the Bible says stuff you don't believe, it's wrong. Right? Their basic foundational hermeneutic is if enough people come to feel positively about something, the church should consider that truth or morality if enough people agree, right? So, 
started a church. This is 20, 30, okay. no, 20 years before Jonestown. Oh, is, okay, then like, is this still a police standard? Oh, yeah, these are, these, these all are from their website right now. Okay. Um, a lot of people believed Jim Jones. Was that not enough people to make what he was doing true? You know, you're right. Where's the line for them? Yeah, God isn't about lines. I mean, seriously, that would be a, what lines? So, as a result, UCC honors not only civil rights for all races, equal rights for women. First woman they ordained was in 1957. You go, break down those barriers. Who cares what the patriarchs say that the Bible means? You know, okay. If you want to disagree with the interpretation, good for you. <laughs> you, you probably should. If you want to disagree that the Bible was right, that's dangerous. If you say, the, the Bible doesn't say that we should be racist. The Bible doesn't say that whites are inherently better than blacks. I'm like, praise God, you're absolutely right. But if you say, well, the Bible clearly says that we should be racist, but that means the Bible's clearly wrong, so we can skip that. I'm like, oh, no, you're arriving at the right conclusion for all the wrong reasons. So they also uh, support equal rights for alternative sexualities. They ordained the first openly LGBTQ pastor in 1972. Encouraged the UCCers to actively involve themselves in LGBTQ legislation and say, support all that. Yes, we'll support gay rights parade floats and things. We support abortion rights and Palestinian independence against Israel and physician-assisted suicide and the legalization of marijuana because people want that now which makes it something the church should support. The church has always been something designed to support what people want to do, if it makes you happy. If a doctrine makes you happy, shouldn't you embrace it? Well, it's not you should not embrace it. Yeah, I come back to possibly. Let's go to possibly. <laughs> What's that? Okay, if we say possibly, that's a waffle. It's not a waffle. But that's a waffle answer. How do you decide that? If it's not no, if it makes there are some denominations. Did you enjoy that? Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Then stop it. This is. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Then do it. So what should be the basis? And now we're back to that. Evangelicals often say, "Well, this is a bad hermeneutic. This is really bad." But if they're really helping the community, isn't that great? How important is capital T truth? Because I'm back with Brian. I totally agree with Brian. This, that last one does kind of speak to this one. If they're helping the community, isn't that great? But yes. the fact that they are helping the community is great. Yep. But that doesn't make everything they do or believe great. Yep. <laughs> but that's nuanced. And an amazing number of us don't like nuance. I was just thinking of Francis Schaeffer. And oh, he excellent. used to say, you need just Christians to be fifth, fifth columnists. Join in yep. in the good that they're doing. But stay from the, you know, the doctrine. So yeah. there is a... And speak know, to it. And speak to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, yeah, by the way, I will say a lot of their services in the UCC are a lot more traditional than ours look on a Sunday morning. Um, and I remember talking to somebody about a completely different denomination one time where they, they mentioned something about it being much more conservative than the denomination I was with at the time. And I'm like, it all depends on what you mean by conservative. 
they had pews, we had chairs. They had a, a, a pastor who wore vestments, and I didn't. Is that more conservative? Yes, structurally. Are they more conservative theologically? Nowhere near as conservative theologically. So again, I'm back to think about your words. When you say conservative and liberal, what do you mean? There are some very biblically conservative churches where the pastor wears jeans and they're Democrats. Can you be politically liberal and biblically conservative? Can you be biblically liberal and politically conservative? It's not all one big capital C. All conservatism is the same. Capital L, all liberals are the same. Anyway, 1959, Family Radio was founded. Anybody here hear Family Radio? Again, it's been around ever since 1959. Brainchild of Christian Reformed Church layman Harold Camping, who degree was in civil engineering. Christian Reformed guy, tall Christian Reformed guy, <laughs> trained in civil engineering. The one day Randy is not sitting oh. in class. So please tell Randy, Randy, you're a lot like Harold Camping. Um, <laughs> Family Radio was created as an avenue for the Christian Reformed Church, the, Baptist, the Bible Baptist Church, and, and uh, various conservative Christian Presbyterian churches to present conservative Bible lessons to San Francisco, which is cool. And it was an interdenominational effort. They had focus on the family there. They had a show called Beyond Intelligent Design. They had Walk with the King, which is still going on. And they, all these different shows that, that really presented a strong Bible base. But little by little, they started removing this show and removing that program and removing this person from the board, removing that person from the board, until about the only one preaching anymore was Harold Camping. About the only one on the board anymore is Harold Camping. Do you guys remember Harold Camping? Do you remember how you remember Harold Camping? Harold came up with an interesting idea in 2011 that God would return on May 21st, 2011. The Bible guarantees that God will return May 21st, 2011. The church spent something like $5 million on billboards and things telling people God's going to return on May 21st, 2011. And by that, what I mean is October 21st, 2011. Because on May 22nd, he said, well, this has been kind of a long weekend. And uh, I need to go back and figure out what's going on. Um, wait! God's investigative judgment began on May 21st. And five months later, on October 21st, that's when it's all, that, no, that, that's what it is. And amazingly, a lot of his followers went, uh, okay, because it's either that or I've been rather foolish. I mean, I sold everything I owned to pay for billboards, and uh, that was probably a bad call, unless he's right. So he's right. Okay, after that, camping kind of withdrew from the public eye. October 22nd, you don't hear that much about him. He promised to study the scriptures more, more carefully. He's like, i got to figure out what I was counting wrong. Um, family radio started distancing themselves. I mean, they, they still were positive about him, but you know, they started pulling his programs in the air and started to put other things on. But the, family, the, the damage wasn't just done to camping and family radio. And that's kind of the key thing. Christianity got a black eye in the public opinion. Atheist groups held post-rapture church services, or jokingly raised money to, quote, help survivors of any Armageddon-sized disaster, unquote. Um, printing up cards to hand out to survivors that said, you should have listened to Jesus. You know, because it's funny. 
Seattle Atheist Rapture, Rapture Relief Fund. Over here is this, this website here. Larry Hickok, California's director of the American Atheists, I think summed up the basic backlash perfectly. He said, really, the issue is the Bible is mythology. Clearly. Clearly, nobody should buy into any of this. And an amazing number of people around the country, even a bunch of Christians, all were laughing at how ridiculous this guy is. How absolutely stupid he is. I don't think he's ridiculous. Well, he's a little ridiculous and stupid for what he did, but the primary thing is because the Bible is very clear that you won't know the time. You're actually being not a conservative. You who are pounding the drum saying, but I'm the conservative one because I believe the Bible. You know, but you don't. That's the thing. You are ignoring scripture to preach scripture. And then he went on to denigrate the concept of religion itself, saying every ruler needs a religion. Everybody knows that's the way to get power. Which, to be fair, is pretty much what L. Ron Hubbard said back in 1948 to a buddy of his. The real money's in religion. If you really want to make a million bucks, start a religion. Hey, so he started Scientology. Then again, Calvary Bible Ch uh, Church down the, down the way, just nearby, started uh, having services to comfort those who had been taken in by campings preaching. I actually appreciated one of their deacons said, we're, we're here because we care about these people. It's easy to mock them, but you can go kick puppies too, but why? We don't want to mock them. We want to love them well. Of course, you can make... It's a legitimate question. Is Calvary Bible being caring for picketing the family radio offices with signs that say, Harold Camping is a false prophet? I'm going to leave that up to individual interpretation. Because they're trying to reach the people that are going into that building or the people who are driving past to say, we are Christians and we don't think this was right, but we do still believe the Bible, please come to our services 10 o'clock Sunday morning, here's our phone number. Some people didn't find this all that loving to do. I don't know, leave that up to you guys. With all the stress surrounding this, uh, Camping experienced a series of strokes <coughs> starting in June of 2011, but in 2012 we issued a statement on behalf of Family Radio admitting that they had sinned against God because they had disregarded Christ's statement in Matthew that no one's going to know about that day. He said, that was wrong. And I humbly ask God for forgiveness. But he also added, you know, that we were wrong. God is still using the May 21st warning in a very mighty way. In the months following May 21st, the Bible has, in some ways, come out from under the shadows. It's now being discussed by all kinds of people who never before paid any attention to the Bible. I mean, reading about and even discussing about the Bible can never be a bad thing, even if the Bible's authenticity is questioned or ridiculed. Even, even as God used sinful Balaam to accomplish his purposes, so he's used our sin to accomplish his purpose of making the whole world acquainted with the Bible. Again, I'm going to leave that up to your individual interpretation. If the way that you are bringing out the Bible is bringing it to ridicule, should we still applaud that the Bible is being discussed? Should we make use of the fact that the, God, the Bible is being discussed? Oh yeah. Now I'm back to what you were saying with Schaefer. He's like, I kind of want to, kind of want to see which way the wind is blowing and and be part of this discussion. But I, I don't think I'm going to cheer that. Because of your sin, the Bible's being ridiculed. But I will praise God if that did bring people to Christ. Isn't a little doctrinal error okay if, if people are ministered to? 
It's okay. We need more Harold Campings. We need more Jim Joneses. We need more of that, don't we? This was that I had a friend of mine from high school that reached out to me after hearing a family radio uh, broadcast and wanted to talk to me about it. Well, praise God. But th I think in a good way, right? He wanted to, he wanted to make sure you were a Christian. Sincere. Okay, good. Well, praise God for that. Yes. going back to what Brian was saying, because ideally what you want is truth and action. No. Action is significant, and that's awesome. You're actually helping people. Great. Praise God. Praise God for your ministry. I see you had me up until that last one. I'm not entirely comfortable with that, that last bit. Praise God that your ministry is helping people. Praise God that your ministry exists in this way. I'm a little uncomfortable with if you are right theologically, and you have worked hard to make sure that you are biblically correct, praise God. That is significant. That's important. And if it doesn't stretch out into truth, if all you do is sit around in a church basement being correct, praise God that you care. But I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable saying, well, praise God that you sit around doing nothing with the truth. So it has to be about that. Truth lived out in action. <laughs> lived out in action. Based on truth. How important is capital T truth? Literally, foundationally important. How important is correct action based on that? If it really is truth, it can't not be lived out in correct action. Because if it isn't lived out in correct action, I'm pretty sure you didn't grasp what you just read or what God laid on your heart. 1960, JFK was elected president. Why am I including that in a church history class? <laughs> what? Because, because I'm, because he said that he could be president and not include his faith in it. So he could he could bifurcate like his faith and his responsibilities to the American people and pretend like his life was you know public and private and and, and separate. And everybody said, yay. Well, okay, let's get to that. But everybody said, yay, that you can bifurcate what you believe and what you're going to do. And we all went, good, that's what we're looking for in president. Because, yes, he was the first, well, not the first uh, candidate, uh, Catholic candidate, but he was the first Catholic president. Um, and his Catholicism was repeatedly brought into question. The first, the only other actual Catholic candidate for presidency was 1928's Al Smith, and a lot of political scientists go, yeah, a large part of the reason he didn't get elected is because America didn't like Catholics. But people were genuinely concerned that Kennedy would essentially be a puppet leader under the Pope, which clearly is ridiculous, right? Because they're like, no, he wasn't as a, as a leader. He could bifurcate this. It's ridiculous, and it shows just how much... Remember, we talked about wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It shows how scared they were. 
Having said that, I need to be careful and I need to be fair to context. It's a little less than a decade since we had a pope saying, everything I speak from God is unquestionable, and anybody who doesn't do what I say is going to hell. And you're a Catholic. History is replete with leaders who did what Rome said, because otherwise they'd go to hell. And America had never had a major Catholic leader like that, so we're like, I don't know how that's going to work. I look at European leaders in the past, I look at Mexican leaders in the past, who did what they did because Rome told them to. The last pope went on record as saying, let me, let me ring the bell of papal infallibility. You must do what I tell you. I speak God's words. So, though it is an unreasoning fear, it was an unreasoning fear based on data that you go, I, I get that. In other words, it's the 1950s in a nutshell, right? An unreasoning fear of communism, because it's not really scary. You go, no, really genuinely scary, really genuinely dangerous. But you're overly scared of it. You're making an invasion of the body snatchers movies because you're terrified of communism. Get over it. Take a breath, people. Right, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. So I get it. I do get it. But yes, Kennedy addressed this concern. He said, the question is whether I think I, if I were elected president, I would be divided between two loyalties, my church and my state. Let me tell you, I would not. I've sworn to uphold the Constitution in the 14 years I've been in Congress, the years I was in the service. The Constitution provides in the First Amendment that Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of religion. I must say I believe in it. I think it's the only way that this country can go ahead. Even specifically said, some, some countries believe in a separation of church and state, some don't. I think it's absolutely essential in America. I categorically believe in an absolute separation between church and state. Keep your faith private. Keep your politics public. Secondly, Article 6 of the Constitution says there shall be no religious test for office. That's what was written in the Constitution. Jefferson, Washington, all the rest. They said every American will have an opportunity. So, how far have we come? Do you think it's a good idea that today there shall be no religious test for office, still for presidents? Do you believe it's, it's good that we shouldn't elect somebody based on whether or not they're our brand of Christian? Individually, we make the choice. Individually, we make the choice. As a nation. Who's going to write the test? Yeah, you, you, you kind of switch the terms yeah, there. Yeah, 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 only if it's mine. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. It, there's no religious test for office. You don't have to be a certain religion to get into office. And yet, evangelicals slammed, and atheists slammed, Mitt Romney for being a devout Mormon, right? Evangelicals because he's a devout Mormon, atheist because he's a devout Mormon, right? Can you have a Mormon in the White House? Do you remember the, the big controversy of that? And then there's a the big controversy about Barack Obama being a Muslim, which I don't think he is, but being a Muslim. As if, even if he were a Muslim, which I don't think he is, but even if he were, would that make him a bad president? I'm amazed at how many people I know, personally, will say, well, you know he's a Muslim, he should never be president. He's out to destroy our country. You go, so Muslim equals not American? Is that really what we want to say? And yet, that's what we keep doing to President. You, I'm not even going to go into it, but his background, his, his church upbringing was that he didn't have one. He went to Easter and to Shinto temples and just didn't care about any of that stuff. None of it really matters, which, to be honest, other than Carter and Bush, is pretty much what every president says. Oh, faith is the important thing, not what you have faith in. 
person. Trump, who's being lauded as an evangelical, has said, when asked who he thought Jesus was, said, Jesus, is, to me, is somebody I can think about for security and confidence. Somebody I can revere in terms of bravery, in terms of courage, and because I consider the Christian religion important, somebody I can totally rely on in my mind. That's the way you would summarize Christ. Or when asked if he ever asked God... business partner. When asked if he, yeah, if he ever asked God for forgiveness, he said, I'm not sure I ever have asked God for forgiveness. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, you can slam Trump, but much more eloquently, isn't that what Kennedy said? I don't bring God into my political picture. I, I bifurcate this. It's what, it's what Obama said. It's How should we as evangelicals respond to this? When you think about people running for president, how have their faith standards affected how people look at them? How should we as evangelicals think about it? Yes, it's our individual choice, and we need to make sure that we are bringing people into offices that we genuinely think are going to honor Christ. And yet, people who get into office tend to be people who sit there and go, I don't. Speaking of Pat Robertson, 61 is the year the Christian Broadcasting Network was founded. It's been going on ever since. There's a lot of truth going on. There's a lot of error. If there's a theme to today, it's to stop and go, wait, what do we support and what do we not? What do we call conservative Christian and what do we not? What do we embrace and what do we not? Can we think complexly nuanced thoughts? Would you pray? Dear Lord, I thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be Christians in a complicated world. Lord, I thank you that ain't none of us perfect, but you love us dearly. No ministry has got it straight. I pray, Lord, help us to try in your strength and in your leading to base all that we do on Scripture first and foremost. Help us to genuinely live that out devoutly, sincerely every day as ambassadors. We give all this to you and pray. Help us to be people who honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.